Well, would you open your Bibles this morning to Daniel chapter 9? Um, you know, I gave you a little hint about this in the, during our time of communion. The, the sermon title is Christ's Covenant is Our Confidence. And we're going to unpack that a little bit more this morning. Um, we're going to study mainly verses 24 through 27. We'll, we'll start reading from verse 20 just to help you remember some of the context. You know, last week we learned that the intent of these verses, this is all prophecy about the coming of Christ, and there are some indications about the second coming of Christ in this prophecy as well. Um, But the the point of, of God giving us this text is to declare how much he loves us. Um, it's the point of this prophecy is to declare that he rules over kings and kingdoms and no one can stop his plan of redemption. No one can stop his saving grace. And that's important not only for those of us who, who are appreciating our salvation already, but, but this morning we're going to be learning about how God gives us confidence that, we're gonna, that he's going to take us from where we are now to be able to one day see him face to face. So as we're studying this morning, here's what I want to ask you to be thinking about. What area of your life are you feeling like you're losing your grip on? What area of your life are you feeling like you don't know if you can finish this? You don't know if you can finish something you started. There's maybe, you, you just don't know how you can hang on because of some trouble you're facing. Oh my goodness, does the text have good news for all of us this morning? Because Christ's covenant is our confidence. So we're going to see that this morning. So would you join me in reading God's inerrant and sufficient and inspired and authoritative word, beginning in verse 20. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift light at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have come now I've come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat. But in a troubled time, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with the many for one week. And for half of the week shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Oh, holy God, would you, just like you gave Daniel understanding of this text, God, we're so thankful that we're now on the other side of Christ's coming. So thank you for that. And would you give us understanding on the basis of what he has fulfilled already in this prophecy and how it will be our confidence that you will sustain us come what may until we see you face to face. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. My precious dad died 13 years ago at the age of 93, and when I was, when he was around the age of 90, he began talking to me about his will. 
I was so uncomfortable about that. Every time he would bring it up, I just was so uncomfortable. I, I did not want to talk about my dad dying. That's all it seemed like to me. I, I didn't want to think about life without him, so I shut him down. I look back at that, I go, oh. I shut him down every time he brought it up. And, I, and listen to what I told him. I told him, Dad, we have plenty of time to talk about that. He was about 90 years old at the time. Plenty of time to talk about that. He's 90. I told an older Christian man of my experience, and what he said really forever changed the way I, I look at this. And I think you'll see the tie-in with the sermon application this morning. I think it applies. You see, my Christian brother told me that one of the most profound expressions of my dad's love was displayed when he wanted to talk to his son about how he had lovingly worked out a plan today while he was with me to prepare me for the time that he would not be with me. That's a lot of love, isn't it? I, I, did, I was a, such a doofus. He was wanting to ensure that he left me with everything he could so that I would have what I needed to fulfill my future responsibilities as a husband and a dad. And I wasn't a grandpa at that time. He was faithful to equip me while he was with me so that I could live faithfully when he was gone. It's a lot of love, isn't it? I certainly want to be mindful of that as a dad with my sons and daughter-in-laws and my grandgirls. But I also want to be mindful of this principle as a pastor. Let me ask you this question. How can a pastoral team, how can we faithfully equip the local church, meaning you, today so that the local church, so that you can live faithfully for Christ in the future until you see him face to face. I think that's one of the biggest tasks of a pastor. It's not just talking to you about how to get through today. It's preparing you for that day and how God will sustain you through that day and how we can equip and prepare you for that day. So the following is not an exhaustive list, but I think it would be helpful for you to know how your SGC elders are seeking to be faithful to our call to love and equip you for ministry and mission that will endure to the end. That will endure to the end. The first one is equip you as a disciple to know, love, and apply the gospel doctrinally from Genesis to Revelation for salvation and sanctification. I think with that we'd, we would do you well to serve you like that. To equip you as a disciple maker. To know and love and apply the gospel functionally. Not just know it doctrinally, but to apply it functionally for community with one another, for ministry and for mission. To equip you to know and love the doctrine of the church. It's people, it's ministry and mission. Because we think that would help ensure that you are drawn and committed to a local church to grow as a disciple and to multiply and mature other disciples rather than be drawn to church for, for the programs it offers. And, and you know what? It just tends to be that the programs church offers tend to seem to be focused more on your temporal needs rather than your eternal needs. We want to be living examples of the character and mission of Christ to illustrate the transforming grace that God provides all believers because your elders are just big old sinners too. And look what grace can do for sinners. To equip you as a disciple and disciple maker through a plurality of biblical elders. This helps prevent an overemphasis on the personality or gifting of any one pastor so that you benefit from the unique strengths and gifts of each pastor on the team. This also guards the church. This also guards you from being overly disappointed or despairing if any one pastor leaves the eldership to maybe plant a church or to serve another church or for retirement, or due to death, or the worst case scenario, due to disqualification. 
and to equip you to be utterly confident in Christ's cross, His covenant, and His sovereign grace so that you endure in ministry and mission until you see Him face to face regardless of the pain or the persecution that might come. I don't know what you're looking for in a church. And I don't know what you're looking for in pastors, but I think some of this at least is what we're supposed to be doing for you. I hope and pray. That's our desire. We, we, we want to kind of always try to let you behind the scenes of eldership to know what we're praying about and how we're seeking to plan and prepare and how we think about Sundays and small groups and children's ministry. All of this is wrapped up in this, training new leaders and trusting to faithful men, those who can teach others also. I think the last bullet point really brings us to our text today. Y'all, the whole book of Daniel demonstrates God's steadfast love in keeping his covenant promises to his people. Their confidence in his covenant, even in in the Old Testament sense, enabled them to faithfully endure the problems and the pain and the persecution of living through multiple changing kingdoms and kings. We, we grumble and complain about four years in office. For, and these folks were hundreds of years with pagan, hateful, evil kings. And they endured. How? Those that were believers had confidence in God's steadfast love and covenant. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Our text this morning foretells and accentuates the importance of Christ's finished work on the cross and the new covenant he inaugurates so that we can persevere in faith and ministry and mission. And if you want to, let's make it more personal. In marriage, in parenting, in a hard job, in limited finances, in a lingering illness, whatever it might be, that we can persevere regardless of the temptations or trials we face. So it's in your notes. The main point is this. Christ's covenant is our confidence that we will endure in faith, ministry, and mission until we see Christ face to face, regardless of the pain or the persecution that comes. So our first point this morning is Christ's covenant is our confidence. And it's so important to establish the, the, the context of Daniel. Um, we work really hard to try, to, try to, to, not only for ourselves, but for you to see the context of Scripture. Some people say context is king in interpreting Scripture. And it's very important for this passage. Uh, particularly, I don't know, you know, the, I, I, I'm just getting older and I lose sense of, generations and what they've been exposed to but but particularly if your if your main understanding of the end times is the left behind movie series it's really important to establish context for this passage i I, i'll tell you up front i don't think they they established the context of the passage let me tell you why okay you ought to be going okay you're going to show you better prove that to go ahead it's okay that's okay so here we go. Many, many believers think that our text today is meant to just be this roadmap of the end times. Well, it includes the promise of Christ coming again. It includes mainly the promise of his first coming. That's what this is mainly about. But it will include his coming again. But, it's, it, but being a roadmap of the end times misses the point of the passage. The passage is one of the most hope-giving messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. It stands right there with Isaiah 53. Bruised for our transgressions, crushed. I mean, the chastisement that brought our peace was put on him. You know that passage. This, is, this stands shoulder to shoulder with that passage in regard to who Christ is and what he was going to accomplish in his death, burial, resurrection, and the new covenant that he would establish for all those who place saving faith in him. So let's introduce the text by understanding the context. So can you take just real quick, let's get our, get our eyes in the book, go back to verses 1 and 2, because remember, Daniel has been praying a lengthy prayer. We're not going to go through the whole prayer, but look at verse 1 and 2. In the, year, in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, 
by descent a Mede who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel has recognized God is fulfilling his word. Wouldn't that be awesome? I mean, you're in your, you're in your prayer closet, and you're studying, and you're, and you're looking at Jeremiah, you're going through your daily readings or whatever you want to, however you want to look at this. And you see that that this time of a 70-year period of exile was actually prophesied and foretold, and it's coming to an end. He's learned that in Jeremiah 25, and so I just wanted to see it for yourself, so it's in your notes. This whole land, starting in verse 11, shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. So that's their time of exile. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in this book, which Jeremiah prophesied against all the nations. For many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. Now look at Daniel 9.3. 9.3 says, Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking Him by prayer, look what He's asking for, and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And look at verse 4 while we're there. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, listen to what He's asking for. O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant... And steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. So because Daniel has seen that the the, the end of the exile is coming to pass. And that Babylon has been defeated. So he's actually living through this in real time. Uh, Medo-Persia is now taking over from Babylon. Daniel is seeing that. So he, he's praying, God, if, if, you've, if you've done this part of the prophecy, keep going, God. Please let me see more. Can, could you restore us to the land? Could you restore us to yourself? Could you bring in the promise of your steadfast love through the covenant? Well, what covenant was he speaking of? Well, that was in Jeremiah too. So here we go. Back to Jeremiah. It's in your notes. So this is, these are all things he would have been reading. And this is informing his prayer life. So Jeremiah 31, read along with me. Well, silently. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. Though I was their husband, declares the Lord, For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall anyone teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord. For they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Amen. Thank God for that. So is it any wonder that Daniel prays what he prayed? Oh God of steadfast love, please renew your covenant with us. Please keep your covenant with us. Please have mercy over us. Please forgive us of our sins. Here's what you wouldn't know unless you just pay attention to in your, in your Bibles, the way the, Lord, the word Lord is used in the Old Testament, when, it's in, when, it's in, um, all, when the word Lord is in all capitals, we're, we're, God is referring to himself there as a covenant-keeping God. It's his covenant name. And he uses that name in Daniel 9 more often in this chapter than anywhere else in the book of Daniel. And I think it's emphasizing Daniel's cry, Oh God, you're the covenant keeper. Oh God, keep your covenant. Let us see your covenant fulfill, God. So again, what word am I saying again and again and again? Covenant, covenant, covenant. The cry for someone to fulfill and reaffirm and confirm 
A new covenant, even Jeremiah 31 says. And all of this focus on God sending the Messiah, all of this focus on him sending the Messiah to inaugurate the new covenant is critical for interpreting this passage, particularly in verse 27, when the text says that he shall make a strong covenant with the many. This is where left behind has not helped believers. Because because the theology of a left behind movie, many believers interpret that the covenant maker, it breaks my heart to even say it, in verse 27 is the Antichrist. Do you see why context is so important? This whole passage is about God's passion to be faithful to you. He kept his covenant with his disobedient people throughout the Old Testament, but he's promised a better covenant, hasn't he? And the one that will make it with us is not the Antichrist. It's the Christ, the Son of God. Oh, it's, listen, but maybe not, still not there yet. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. Let's just keep going. So we, we got to be careful how we interpret that. Context is king in this chapter, as it is in every chapter of the Bible. Because knowing Christ as the covenant maker, oh, precious brother and sister, that's going to be your confidence that God's going to keep you believing until the end. Your confidence in the covenant of salvation that he made with you is not just to forgive your sins. It's to transform you, to put his his word in your heart, to give you a desire to serve him as a minister of his grace and as a witness for his glory. And that you will hang in there because he's holding you until the end. It's so important to understand. So Gabriel is coming to answer Daniel's prayer. That's what this is all about. That God would have mercy and show his love for sinners. And Gabriel's bringing that great news. God dearly loves his people and would show them unfathomable. I can never say that. I don't know why I put it in my notes. Unfathomable. Unfathomable. Lots and lots of mercy that you can't even explain. By sending the Messiah who would die for their sins and be raised for their justification to give them a new covenant, promising them new hearts. With that, hearts that had the desire and the power to be faithful to him until the end. So let's keep moving. Second point is Christ's work of redemption was fully accomplished as prophesied in Daniel 9.24. So Gabriel confirms to Daniel that the 70-year exile was indeed nearing its end. He tells them now of a new 70-year period, a 70-year pattern. That's a better way to say it, a 70-year pattern that's about to begin. But this would be far more than ending in exile. It would be far better. And it would speak of the coming of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Uh, it was, he, first, it was 70 years of exile, but now we're talking about, like we, I won't go into it in detail, you can listen to last week's sermon, but now we're talking about 70 weeks of years, or 77s, or if you wanted to do the math, a, a period of, if you did the math, it's 490 years. In other words, what's happening here is before the prophecy of the 70 weeks is over, the following descriptions of what Christ would do to save us would be accomplished. This is so exciting. What's accomplished in the 70 weeks is Christ's full redemptive work for the forgiveness of our sins. So in this Old Testament passage, here's where I want you to just be able to start tucking this one beside Isaiah in terms of your Old Testament, the, the texts of the Old Testament that you treasure that point you to Jesus again and again. I pray that this one would now be standing right there with Isaiah. What can we see in this text about the redemption of Jesus? Um, uh, And and how would the Jews understand this passage? Um, About the 49 years and and the 50th year, there was this seven, all the 70 passage. That was the year of Jubilee and that was last week's sermon too. So I'm going to entrust that to you as well. 
Um, so Gabriel has come and he's he is declaring what Jesus the Messiah would do for us in answering Daniel's prayer for mercy and forgiveness and how Jesus would bring in not just a year of jubilee, but an utter year of jubilee. Year of Jubilee was 49 years, and the 50th year was a year of Jubilee. This is 490 years with the culmination of Jesus coming and inaugurating freedom and forgiveness that the year of Jubilee can't even compare to. So what, does, what do we learn about what Jesus did? Well, here it's in your notes. Christ finished the transgression. The death of Christ breaks sin's ruling power. Christ put an end to sin. The penalty of sin was paid. The power of sin is broken. And when Jesus comes again, the presence of sin will be gone. Christ atoned for iniquity. Wrath was satisfied and forgiveness is offered. Christ brings about everlasting righteousness. Doesn't it sound like we're reading the New Testament, right? It just sounds like we're just reading about Jesus. And we are. This is the prophecy of Him coming. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law and he imputed his righteousness to us as though we obeyed all of the law. He credited his obedience to us. What a, what a joy and what a gift. Christ sealed both vision and prophet, meaning that Jesus is the great prophet. Jesus fulfills all of the law and the prophets. And Christ is anointed as the most holy place. He is identified as the one and only Messiah, the true and best and lasting meeting place between God and man. He's the Son of God. This is how we can have utter confidence in Christ's salvation. Wrath is satisfied for every sinful deed and evil thought. Wrath is satisfied. All of it was paid in full. Do you really believe your sins have been forgiven completely? Or do you still feel like you've got to kind of beg for it? Oh, precious one. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He offered that up through his death. He's provided us with everlasting righteousness. So that, that shows you he's paid it all. Because now he counts his righteousness as though it were your very own. It is your own. But he's counted it to you. To have and to hold. <laughs> For richer or poorer, till death you are. He wants you to know this is what God thinks of you. I just... I think all of us have those times when we think, God, what, do you, what must you think of me after I said this? What must you think of me after I did this? Here's what he thinks of you. You are clothed in the righteous garments of Jesus Christ, my son, because of his obeying all of the law for you. It was all credited to you. That's what he's thinking of you. I mean, doesn't that make you want to go, Thank you, Lord. Here we go. The th third point is this. The promise of Christ's covenant provided enduring faith during troubled times. So just the promise of Christ's covenant for the Old Testament saints provided enduring faith during troubled times. So Gabriel's un unpacking. So this is starting in verse 25. Gabriel is unpacking for Daniel that an anointed one which is literally the name of the Messiah, is going to come after a period of 69 weeks or 69 sevens. So he highlights the first seven-year period. You saw that when we were reading that. To begin the, at the decree of Cyrus, and we talked about that last week too, that the Hebrew exiles were, were able to be free to go rebuild the temple and the city. And I can only think that the reason it, it, it separated the 72-year period from the 62-year period um, was, was not because there were two different times or there was things going on in between those periods. I think it was just God's kindness to Daniel because Daniel walked with the Lord. He was dearly beloved. And God was allowing Daniel to see the beginning of the unfolding and fulfilling of the prophecies of the coming Messiah. 
When would that have been like? That what you've been praying for, God is saying, Daniel, it's happening. Look at this. Here, watch what I do, Daniel. Cyrus, unbeliever, right? Yeah, God, he's a major unbeliever. Watch what I do with his heart. And Cyrus, you know what? I'm going to set the exiles free. <laughs> what? Pagan king setting the exiles free? You don't think God rules over every king and kingdom? Oh, he rules over every king and kingdom. And Daniel is able to be singing the prophecies of Jeremiah unfolding before his very eyes. And so there's that first seven years of sevens. And so the first 49 years, Daniel was alive to see and hear that declaration, which would just be another proof that God is keeping his covenant, isn't it? He's keeping his covenant. His covenant is my confidence. And when you add the 62 weeks to the first seven, it will cover the time frame from Cyrus's declaration to cover the return to the land, the restoration of the temple. Ezra goes back a few years later. He leads a large group of exiles back to Jerusalem. His mission is essentially to teach the law of God to many of the people who didn't know the law of God or who still were disobeying it. Because again, what good is it to be back in the land if you're still disobeying God's word? So there's Ezra's mission, and he brings some people back. And then a few years after that, King Artaxerxes has Nehemiah go back. And he, re- he brings more exiles to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And all of these were huge blessings, to be sure. And it's likely that with each fulfillment of the prophecy, it's likely that the Israelites thought, Oh, goody! The Messiah must be coming now! Right? And they're... <laughs> Okay, now, now, don't we do that? Right now is the best time for all of us, isn't it? I mean, it's like so many of my prayers are right now prayers. God, your will be done. But can it be right now? There were huge blessings about this unfolding prophecy. But the Messiah didn't come after the first 42 years. And he didn't come after the next 434 years. In fact, he would come after that next 430. So stop. Okay, stop. 483 years these people keep believing. And that was before Jesus had come. They're believing the promise that he will come. We know he has come. What's sustaining your hope? What's sustaining? Where are you about to give up? Do you have some place to look that will renew your confidence that he'll never let you go and he'll finish what he started and he's going to walk you step by step until you see his glorious face at the end? You know what our hope is? Christ's covenant, just like the covenant was the hope of these people. So um, did you notice, and I tried to use some accentuation, did you notice that the, the temple would be rebuilt, the walls would be rebuilt, the city would be rebuilt, and then it says, in troubled times. So not only had Jesus not come yet, they're still going through 483 years of can I use this word theologically? Of hell. Of persecution. Troubled times. God, when are you going to come? How long, O oh Lord? How many of your prayers are like that? How long, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? How long before the Messiah comes? Lord, don't you see what Antiochus Epiphanes is doing to us? Don't you see a baby boy gets, gets circumcised and, and if they find out the mother is crucified? Don't you care, Lord? How long, oh Lord? And then it just goes, it, it doesn't stop at Greece. 
It goes into Rome. Rome's not only ruling over Israel. I mean, please, please try to picture this. The place of your hope as an Old Testament saint is, the, is that God will meet with me at the temple. And God is supposed to restore the land. God's supposed to defeat all of our enemies. Go back and look at your Bible maps and look at what the, the land of Israel looked like under David's king, under his rule. It's a ton of land. And, and just feel that. It's no wonder what the people of, of God thought that the Messiah was going to be political and military because that's really, that they just faced it again and again and again. Oppression, military, political, racial oppression. God, can't you kick these people out? Why are they still here? And then if that's not adding insult to injury, a Roman fortress is a hundred yards from the temple. That would make you want to vomit. I'm sorry to be gone. It would just make you sick. How long, O oh Lord? What sustained the faith of those who had to endure years, generations of hardship and trouble and persecution and pain? Did they hope that a better and kinder political and military king would come? Do they think that if they just had enough faith, they could bring about God's healing and prosperity? Was it just religious, wishful thinking? So let me ask you. I'm just going to give you a list of things. What sustains your faith during long seasons of disappointment? What sustains it? Try, during trial and pain, rejection, sickness, or financial crisis. What sustains your faith during extended times when you're more resentful than you are thankful for your spouse? What sustains your faith when every form of discipline that you've tried is failing on your strong-willed child? And it seems like he or she's not only becoming more strong-willed, they're becoming way more disobedient with age. And their heart, this is what's most fearful to a parent, it seems like their heart is just getting harder and harder. What sustains your faith? What sustains your faith when you're trying to do everything right at work or at school or on your sports teams or in ministry? Regardless of how hard you try and how long you work, it seems that other people who don't work as hard or don't try as hard or don't even care as much about what's right and wrong, they get all the recognition. They get the promotions and the appreciation. What sustains your faith in a culture you know, weren't you excited about the heartbeat law here in Texas? Did you notice how it seems like hell boiled over in response to that? I'm sorry. Theological. Theologic. Moms and dads, I'm sorry. But... <laughs> Can I keep going? I'm going to just keep going. Um... What sustains your faith in a culture that defines evil as allowing babies with Down syndrome to live? That, that's evil. There's going to be so many more babies born with Down syndrome or with disabilities. Oh, that's evil. But what is acceptable is killing them in their mother's womb. What sustains your faith in this kind of culture? What sustains your faith when the federal government seems to be doing all it can to increase racism and reduce respect? To increase dependency upon the government and decrease the desire to work hard? What sustains your faith when lawlessness is virtuous and law enforcement is villainized? What sustains your faith when honoring the sanctity of marriage between one biological man and one biological woman is counted as being hateful? while not recognizing gender fluidity is considered hurtful. What sustains our faith? Well, what sustained the faith of, of believing Israel and what will sustain the faith of those who have put Christ, made Christ their Lord and Savior, is confidence in the Messiah who establishes a new covenant by his own blood. 
His covenant is our confidence that sustains our faith. It sustains our ministry and it sustains our mission until He comes regardless of how troubled the lives that we have to live uh, are. But many in Israel thought that the promised Messiah would come to be a great political leader, restore all their land. We all talked about that. But the prophecy Gabriel, Gabriel gave Daniel was not of a, of a fantastic military conqueror, was it? It was the promise of a suffering servant. That's what we most needed. We didn't need somebody to come and just give us heaven on earth while we had hearts dead in sin. We need someone to come <coughs> to save us from that sin. Let's go to the next point. Excuse me just one second. So the fulfillment of Christ's covenant provides enduring faith in our troubled times. Let's see this, and we're going to see this in verses 26 and 27. After the 69 weeks, did you notice verse 26 says, An anointed one shall come, a prince shall come. Saying that just as the 69 weeks ran consecutively, there wasn't this break, right? It was 69 weeks ran consecutively. It runs consecutively into the 70th week. And that's where a lot of theologies we would, that I would disagree with. They believe that there's this, this parenthesis somehow in between those weeks, but it's just not in the text. They run consecutively. After the 69th week, the Messiah is to us. He comes. And how do we know? Look, it's in your note. I think, do I have Luke 4, 18 through 21 in your notes? No. I didn't include that. So that's where Jesus is saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Meaning what? I'm the anointed one. He just made it as clear as possibly could be. I'm the anointed one that was prophesied in Daniel. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant. And he sat down and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. But he doesn't bring in the year of Jubilee through military or political power. He brings in the year of Jubilee through his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. The anointed one shall come and be cut off and have nothing. So keep going. So we're in verse 26. Did you notice it says the anointed one shall be cut off? Those were the same words used of the cutting that was required to reaffirm a covenant through the shed blood of an innocent sacrifice. This is what the Messiah, the anointed one, would do. He would come and be cut off, not what people were expecting, but what we most needed. And then it goes on to say, he shall have nothing. And isn't that so true? He was abandoned by his disciples. He was condemned in our place by his father. He wasn't even left with his own clothes as the Roman soldiers cast lots for them. And that was a fulfillment of Psalm 22, y'all. He even needed to be placed in a borrowed tomb. He had nothing. The one who, the one who created everything had nothing. Verse, 27, verse 26 and 27 it's important to understand these are not sequential passages of time between verse 26, but they're really they're parallel passages to elaborate and provide other details about who the anointed one was and what he did. So in verse 27 we see, and he, so here we go, elaborating on verse 26, who's the he? The anointed one. That's so important. The anointed one shall make a strong covenant with the many. Not the Antichrist. The anointed one who would bring in all of those six wonderful qualities of redemption that we read in verse 24. The anointed one who was cut off and left with nothing. He's the one 
who makes a strong covenant with the many. And the many is a great hope because it's not just talking about Israel, isn't it? It's talking about people from every ethnicity that God would reach with the gospel and save. Oh, it's so exciting. This is the one making the strong covenant with the many for one week. And for half the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. That's the he of verse 27. It's the anointed one. It's the Messiah. He's the one making the strong covenant. This is the answer to Daniel's prayer. Again, context is king, isn't it? This is what Daniel prayed for and more. So much more. The he in verse 27 is the anointed one. And at the end of this three to three and a half years of public ministry, do you notice it talks about, about three and a half years in? Well, that's, a, that's about as long as Jesus' public ministry lasted. And what did he do at the end? He shed his own blood as described in verse 26 and 27 to make this strong covenant with the many. Oh, thank you, Lord. And he put away the need for any more shedding of blood of bulls and goats, right? Did you see how it says he put an end to sacrifice and offering? The Son of God has come. There's no more need for us to keep confessing sin, sacrificing an animal, confessing sin, sacrificing an animal, confessing sin, sacrificing an animal. It is finished! Such good news. He puts an end to sacrifice and offering. And we saw that, didn't we? In the tearing of the veil in the temple. Now access to God would come through Jesus alone. Not through an earthly high priest. Not through the the shed blood of an animal. It would only be through Jesus. And the beauty of Christ's covenant, the reason we place such confidence in it is twofold. He, he accomplished all that he, we studied in verse 24. He shed his blood to satisfy God's wrath and he reckoned us righteous with his very own righteousness. But he gave us new hearts. That's one of your hopes. The new covenant of Christ, he gave us new hearts, you guys. That's the foundational reason, though your grip may fail. Mine does. I feel like my grip fails every week. Though my grip will fail, I have a heart from God that won't. Thank you, Lord. New hearts. The Spirit now indwells us. Okay, well, Billy, what about the people of the prince who is to come? Because there's a lot of bad stuff in these passages. What about the people of the prince who is to come, who shall destroy the sanctuary and bringing about its end like a flood and bringing war against it and desolations being decreed? This sounds like the end times. This sounds like the great tribulation, right? Isn't that what it is? Verse 27 says, And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Well, you guys, the New Testament helps us interpret the Old Testament. There's a lot of people that somehow try to interpret the Old Testament without the New Testament informing it. So Jesus himself interprets this really bad time. And this is in your notes. In Matthew 24, Jesus left the temple and he was going away. When his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple, but he answered them. You see all these, do you not? He's pointing at the temple and all of the stones. Truly I say to you, there will not be left one stone here upon another that will not be thrown down. And there's some other, I just didn't have time to put all of this in. You can go back and look at all 24. But then in verse 15, look what he says. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken by the prophet of Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand that, this is, that they were following him. That's what they, that they were going to get this. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who's in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. You see, what he's telling them is that the Roman general Titus is going to come in 70 AD. 
and he's going to overwhelm Jerusalem and the temple with his armies. They're going to come in like a flood to quench a, a, a Jewish rebellion. And they're going to come in like the wing of abominations. It was going to happen so fast. They were going to desecrate the temple with images of Roman gods. But the, the, the most, listen guys, the most insulting thing was just that Titus himself took his stance in the temple where only the high priest could go. It was that in itself was a horrible abomination. They murdered, the estimate is they murdered about a million people. Can you even imagine that? A million people in a nation that size. Sometimes crucifying them two at at a time. They're on the same cross, front and back. So you're seeing these multiple crucifixions of people on both sides of the cross. But it also says that it was the people of the prince to come. What is that talking about? In other words, the Jews that rejected Christ. There's talking about the Jews that rejected Christ. They rejected him as the full and final payment for sins. And so in that sense, they're going to be held responsible for the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. Jesus' death no longer required the sacrifices of bulls and goats. Yet they continued offering those sacrifices even after he came. Guys, what would that have been like? Isn't that, at that point, when Jesus paid it all and you continue to offer bulls and goats, doesn't that become an abomination? Well, this isn't new. It's just history repeating itself. It was the Jews' rejection and disobedience to God's law that caused the first destruction of Jerusalem, the first destruction of the temple by Babylon. But now it's even worse because they're rejecting Christ. Now, isn't it wonderful that this judgment on Jerusalem and the temple will not be the last word? Because the New Testament promises, guys, that massive numbers of Jewish people will place saving faith in Christ before he comes. So that, what a merciful, wonderful God. Though Christ fully accomplished salvation for all who believe in him, there will yet be abominations made by future Antichrist figures. And so that's going to come up to, to our time. You see, just as Satan inspired the Antichrist figures in the Old Testament to try to attack God, how? by attacking the temple, well, the same tactic is going to happen. Paul described the temple, and the New Testament temple is who? Go ahead, you tell me. It's us. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. As individuals and as a corporate church. And the Antichrist, he attacked the Old Testament temple and tried to abominate it and desolate it. And that's what he's doing even to today. Alan did such a good job having us pray for our Christian brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. They're the temple of the Holy Spirit that Antichrist figures are desolating today, aren't they? Isn't it happening in many ways, and just even in the United States? And thank God that, that we don't have people coming, bursting down our doors and threatening us with death because of our faith. But there's all kinds of lies and heresy being promoted, and faults, and, and, and morality, immorality being dressed in morality. There's all kinds of desolations taking place from Antichrist figures even till today. And in this passage, it seems that that Daniel, that there will be one day when the desolator will be desolated. And that's the day that that we know of when Satan himself gets thrown into the lake of fire and judged forever for his hatred of God and his persecution of the people of God. So in bringing this to a close, some of you have kind of been following along. You're going, okay, I see that we've gone, we've gone into the 70th week and you've stopped at three and a half weeks. What about the last three and a half weeks, the last three and a half years of, of the story? You're leaving that out. That's why we're going to study the book of Revelation next. So you have to trust me with that. But in Revelation, multiple times, there is a reference to the three and a half years. 
And it's about when the beast is allowed to oppress God's people who are pictured as being in the wilderness waiting for Christ to come again. It's not a literal three and a half years. It's the time in which Christ came his first time and he came his second time. And in that time, there is going to be trouble. So where's our confidence? It's in the covenant. The good news is that God has completed and will complete his promised redemption. No enemy power, nor no demon, no sin or sinner, no devil will stop him. His people shall experience the fullness of the promises of God. He was cut off so we might never be. So just start right there. Think about all you're feeling like you can't go on with. And think about, wait a minute, Christ was cut off so I would never be cut off. I can go on. He conquered my worst problem. He had nothing so that he would give me everything I need. All I need to serve him today is mine. That's why he was made nothing, so he could give us everything. He was the once for all sacrifice that our sins demanded. Truly, Christ's covenant is our confidence that we will endure in faith and ministry and mission until we see him face to face, regardless of the pain or persecution that may come. Some people have put it this way. I think I, Piper, I read years ago, said it this way. So realize the love of the world is going to get increasingly colder, but the love of the followers of Christ is going to get hotter and hotter until he comes again. That's our great hope, isn't it? I love this quote from Bonhoeffer. He was actually referring, using it as an illustration of marriage, but I, I, it's really rooted back in the illustration of our walk with Christ because of the covenant of salvation. And this is in your notes. From this point forward, it is not your love that sustains your covenant. It will be the covenant that sustains your love. Your emotions aren't going to get you through. They're not, right? I mean, isn't that one of our problems? We're hoping that our emotions can get us through this hard time or just our good efforts. No, not, that won't sustain the covenant. The covenant will sustain you. The covenant will sustain your love. The covenant will sustain your hope. The covenant will sustain your obedience until he comes. So here's kind of a funny way to end this, this uh, sermon today. I told you at the very beginning that our pledge to you as, as a plurality of elders is we want to equip you to run the race until the end. I think the end will be when Christ comes again to fully and finally establish his kingdom on earth. And I think this, that's what the text told us this morning. You may think the end will be a coming rapture of the church. Remember what I said last week? No problem. I love you to pieces. I love you to pieces. We're still going to equip you to run the full marathon. Okay? If the rapture comes when we've only run a half marathon, <laughs> I don't think either of us will be disappointed. I'll be happy to go up with you. I'll be happy. And I think you too will be happy that we equipped you to run your race until that point. And if, the full, if it's the full marathon, I think you'll be thankful that we equipped you to run that race too. Can you stand with me? And let's pray. Oh, Lord, it's no wonder why you want gospel-centered people and gospel-centered churches. Where would we turn were it not to you? Where would we turn were it not for the finished work of Christ on the cross? Full forgiveness, declared righteousness, adoption as sons and daughters. Thank you for that security. And I pray, God, would you just renew the security of every believer here this morning? The security in what you have done, not what they're trying to do, 
but what you have already done. God, would you just grow our confidence in the new covenant you've given us. Thank you for sins forgiven and thank you for hearts that desire to know you better and to serve you more. Thank you for the local church, which is just another one of the graces you've given us to ensure that we do finish the race until we see you come again. And God, for all the unique troubles. The text talked about troubled times. God, we know that that many of our folks are going through troubled times. Would you meet with them this morning and give them a renewed confidence in the covenant that Christ established with them through the shedding of his blood, that you're never going to let them go, and that you're going to walk with them step by step in ministry and mission until they see you face to face. We pray this for your glory, the advancement of your kingdom, and the church's joy. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you'd like to receive prayer uh, this morning, Marcus and Michelle will be up in front here for anyone who wants prayer for anything. Uh, The Lord bless you and keep you, everybody. Thank you.